Thank you for downloading this Device Talks podcast brought to you by MassDevice.com. In this next interview, we speak with Joe Chiani, CEO of the medical device company Massimo, about the company's 25-year journey. The interview was recorded live in Irvine, California at our Device Talks West show on November 19, 2014. To learn more about Device Talks, attend one of our live tapings, or download an archived podcast, visit www.devicetalks.com. Thank you again for downloading this Device Talks podcast. Massimo turned 25 this year, and I, I thought we could take a few minutes just to kind of chat about the perspective that the milestone has afforded you. Um, have you taken a moment to reflect, or is that just not your nature? I have. I have taken time to reflect, and I do it once in a while when I come to these kind of meetings. It's a, it's a good time to reflect. And, uh, uh, it's great. I, I can't believe uh, how far we've come. I can't believe how uh, we've uh, forever changed our industry and in ways uh, touched many, many people's lives. And um, when I think about the babies' lives we saved, the eyesight we saved, adults' lives, and and the constant innovation that Massimo's uh, been able to to produce, uh, it feels really good. Yeah. It's it's certainly really impressive, and always obviously you have one of those classic sort of startup stories. So um, I want to kind of dig into a couple of those moments here. Um, now I don't know how many people know sort of the the legend of Massimo or the backstory of Massimo, but um, let's, I want to go back to the, to the meetings, you, like the meetings you had with the four patient monitoring companies back in the early 90s, and those basically which have really shaped your professional life. And maybe first just kind of take everybody through, um, if you can, and briefly, the <laughs> biggest moments of your life here. Uh, sort of the decision you were facing as a young entrepreneur having developed this technology that um, you knew could perform better than the current standard of care. And about four years in, you take these meetings with Nelcor at the time and some of the other big patient monitoring companies, and you're going to bring to them this technology to maybe take it from there, and, and let's, let's kind of tell the, the story if people don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'd be happy to. We, uh, we were naive enough and young enough to try to go do something everyone else had thought was impossible after trying to do it. And uh, after we solved this problem of motion artifact and low perfusion with pulse oximetry, that was the bane of pulse oximetry. 70 to 90% of the alarms with pulse oximetry were false. And I didn't realize all the clinical problems it was causing. So when we proved that we could actually solve that problem, um, we met with the four biggest companies at the time, uh, Melcor and Omida and uh, Hewlett Packard and Space Lab, the two patient monitoring companies and the two pulse oximetry companies because you know, we thought that's probably the fastest way to get the technology in the hands of uh, the clinicians and the patients. And uh, we didn't really plan to compete with them. We just wanted to license the technology and then hopefully go use that core technology 
to develop other non-invasive parameters like hemoglobin and hopefully one day maybe glucose. So, um, you know, we were, I think, naive. Uh, I think in retrospect, uh, if I was going to do it over again, I wouldn't do it. Uh, I, I've always tell entrepreneurs, don't go to the market leader with your idea until you're ready to market it. You want to surprise your would-be even suitors. Uh, otherwise, they have too much time to react to you and to try to um, get around you. And, and you ended up in, you know, mired in legal battles against these companies for years, and you eventually won. So it's a, it's a really nice story. It's a David and Goliath story, right? Um, do you ever think about the person you were before you went into those meetings and the person who came out of those meetings? How, how, who, how different were you before that experience and after that experience, and did it change you? It did not change me, and I think you have to be careful with every negative uh, act, act by another person uh, to not let that change you. Because if you do, then they won. Uh, I really believe in forever optimism is the constructive and the only uh, way to be uh, in the whole evolution of, uh, of our world. Uh, I, I used to like to play chess, and I, so I always think about the end game. And uh, I think the end game, you quickly realize none of us are going to be here 100 years from now, unfortunately, right? Or fortunately. So you say that kind of puts everything in perspective. And then you kind of say, OK, well, I'm going to do my best to make a contribution, to, to achieve happiness, to, uh, you know, to leave things in a little better shape. And, and you kind of, it, I can't say you enjoy, but when the world throws you challenges, uh, I think it's meant to be. You know, in retrospect, if there's one thing I've come to conclude is the challenges that were thrown at us, uh, it was to, it was meant to be. I mean, think about with Nelcor and Omida and HP and these guys behaving the way they did. It made us a better company. I'm glad they didn't license it. I'm really glad to be in the industry the way we are. When the GPOs were blocking the best technologies from reaching patients, and uh, we're just worried about how much money they make. And us standing up to that and making a change for that not just helped us, it helped, helped the whole industry. Uh, so, so no, I, I hope it hasn't changed me. I, I try mm -hmm. to not let it change me. I, I guess I wonder, you know, the, the, um, the fighter, right, and you, I mean, you're, you guys are pugnacious. I mean, I, I, I would... When, when somebody bites Massimo, you guys bite back pretty hard. Um, how much of that fighting spirit was embedded in your DNA and how much kind of was um, sort of force of situation? And how much is still net, like in your personality? How much is like just you have to defend your turf? Well, I, um, I think it is in my DNA. You know, I, was, I graduated from high school when I was 15 started college when I was 15. So I was always a really small kid in school. And I learned that the toughest kid in school isn't the one that can hit the hardest, but that can take the most <laughs> and still hit back. Uh, so I think it's in my DNA. I think um, you know, one of my philosophies in life is uh, micro-fixing. 
as I do look for opportunities when problems arise to try to fix the things around me. Because I think, unfortunately, big changes can have huge negative consequences that you can't foresee. But small, microscopic, undetectable changes, if we all did them, if we all found our little micro fixes, could make the world better maybe 50 years from now, much better. Um, I mean, you're, you're a hard-charging guy. I mean, I've received emails from you uh, on Sunday mornings at, when I woke up, and I'm on the East Coast, and maybe it was like 8 o'clock, and the, the, the timestamp is about 5 o'clock my time. So I'm like thinking, wow, on Saturday night <laughs> at 2.30 in the morning, Joe Chiani's still working. Um, and, and Carol, you're going to have to answer this, too. Um, I was probably in Europe at that time. <laughs> You always seem to be working. I mean, like, doesn't seem like you have an off button. Is this what it takes to be successful, or is it just what it takes you guys to be successful? Because if that's the, I mean, if this is what it takes to be successful, maybe, maybe we all don't want to be a successful <laughs> guy. You know, you've got to find what you love to do, uh, because if you do, then it doesn't feel like work. Uh, I used to, I used to love Hawaii Five O, and you know, McGarrett. I mean, he always worked. You know, Captain Kirk always worked. Uh, you know, I I love what I do, and I don't. It doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Now these days, I have a family, I have kids, and and I love them more than my work. But I do try to kind of balance uh, balance two, but um, it's not work. I I tell every young person or whatever person who asks that kind of question, work-life balance. If you want my job, forget that concept. It's real easy. And number two, if you want my job, you better be as passionate as me, or you'll never get it. And that kind of goes the same way you are. It's a passion that drives you. I enjoy what I do. I love being in my office. I love working with my people. That is not, uh, sometimes I hate the traveling, but otherwise I'm really passionate and love what I do. So I don't really recognize how the hours go by. And if you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you have a good idea, shoot it out. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I also I, I agree with Carol, and I think that there are some people that they think they're so smart they don't have to work hard. I, I don't think that's possible. I think uh, the only way to achieve success is to have smarts, have smarts, have have, uh, have intelligence, but you have to work hard. In fact, I came across my yearbook in high school, which I know it's going to make you guys all know that I'm a geek. Yeah. And my quote was, the only time success comes before work is in the dictionary. So, <laughs> so that, that was at 15. I don't know why I learned that or heard that, but I can't think it was my idea, but that was my senior year statement. Mine was a Jim Morrison quote, so now we know why. <laughs> <laughs> now we know why I'm in journalism and you're changing the world. What, take me to the nearest whiskey bar? <laughs> <laughs> Something about Lizard King. Yeah. Um, Let's be honest. Uh, you're, you're, as a hard charger, though, has it ever? It, it must have caused some conflict with employees and customers. Maybe, uh, I mean, how do you find people that can keep up with your energy? In, um, in terms of the people that work with you or I, work for you. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that. Uh, having the ability to found Massimo, uh, I was very uh, conscious about the idea that. You can create a culture that has its own immune system. 
And what I mean by that is that uh, it rejects people that don't fit in. Uh, I don't have to go do it. People feel like they can't uh, be part of it. I remember there was one fellow who was coming from a big company. I'm not going to mention the company. Uh, and he really wanted to come to Mastermind. This was like 15 years ago. And um, he said to me, you know, we, we went through the interview, a very bright guy. And I just said, look, I just want to warn you, this is a 12-hour day job. This is not eight-hour day job. And sometimes Saturdays and Sundays, I said, no, 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 I, I want to come. I want to be there. And uh, I'd rather work 12 hours a day than be bored and work only two hours a day. So literally, the third day, I was traveling, and he called me up and said, Joe, you were right. This is way too hard. I'm sorry. I'm not coming to work. I can't take it. And he just quit on his own. Uh, I think Mastermind calls that the Suda test, uh, which is the Suha test, which is the name of this gentleman. That I'm not going to give his last name, but uh, we have a Suha test. See if people make it past the third day. You mentioned culture, and that kind of steals my thunder, but I really like the quote. Um, tech, there's, a, there's, obviously, there's a big saying, right, that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, um, in that the company's success is more defined by its values and behavior of the people that work there um, than you know, the strategy to become the best widget or things like that. Uh, do you agree with that idea? And um, how do you define culture at Massimo? Absolutely. I, I think as a parent, I see parents many times tell their kid what to do, what not to do. And I believe kids do end up doing what we do. So really, a culture is about, number one, the leadership with the first 50 people you have at the company. How is it that they behave is what defines the culture of the company in the long term. And if you have a culture, I think our culture is, number one, we look for the brightest people. Uh, I have a, this is not meant to be a joke, but I, I do say it that uh, Muhammad and I, who were the first couple of people at Massimo, we say it's a good thing we're not interviewing at Massimo now, we wouldn't be hired. Uh, because we do look for the smartest, brightest people, and then hardworking people, and just the desire to make the world better with better products, figuring out customers' problems. Yeah. Every time a customer complains, we assume it's real. We chase it down as like there's no tomorrow. We don't send someone down from tech support. We send our head of engineering. We send the best people we have to figure things out. And I think that, you know, that is our culture. And when new people come in, they observe who we are. And they tell me, we've never seen anything like this before, the way we just do whatever it takes to make the best product to make our customers happy. Carol, do you agree with that statement, that culture eats strategy for breakfast? Uh, there's something to that, for sure. If you're a 175-year-old company, sixth generation, you've got to say that's true. It's got to be that way. Uh, if it were all strategy, at some point in time, we would have had to fail because people were always doing it differently. And at Bebron, we really live our culture. We really, it's sustainability. It's, it's longevity. We belong to, we're owned by one family. Uh, that truly is totally devoted to this company. We all see that. Uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, the answer is yes. I could talk about B. Braun for another hour, but yeah. it's Joe's time. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were really.
there. I thought they were good questions, so I wanted to kind of get both your input on that. But yeah, Joe, do you, can can a singular executive define the culture, or does it, or does that have to evolve? Like, when you started Massimo, do you think you defined the culture? Or do you think the culture was defined by, like, like what you said, the first fifty people or the or the, the founding group? I really think it's the first fifty people. Uh, I think. You know, every person becomes a, uh, the seat for that, and certainly, uh, we, you know, I was part of creating that culture, but I, I do believe it's the first 50 people because one person cannot do it. I, I get congratulated a lot for the amazing work my team does, and I also get criticized for the sometimes the, the not so amazing work my team does. But it really is the entire company that uh, either delivers or doesn't. Could you start Massimo today in this environment? Probably not. Unfortunately, probably not. I, I think, uh, I think it's gotten too difficult. Uh, you know, one of the things that you talked about having some kind of certainty with business, knowing what to expect. Uh, our company was found, you know, started by me. I was 23, 24 years old. My uh, partner was about 28, 29. Uh, we were a bunch of kids. We didn't have any experience in the industry. We were engineers, and we thought we could solve this problem. And the only reason uh, we were able to raise money was because of our patents. And in, that, in those days, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, it was about 10 years after the Federal Circuit were, uh, was created to look after patents only, instead of it being at different courts. The appeals went, Federal Court of Appeals was created in D.C. And patents, you kind of, you knew what your property rights were. Uh, I remember venture capitalists, when they were looking at investing in us, that's the biggest thing they looked at. Uh, because they didn't think we could really figure out distribution fast enough. They didn't think we could figure out, we didn't have the connections. It was, can these patents really protect their IP? so that they can come to an industry where it's been dominated by a monopolist and, and, and crack it. And uh, today, unfortunately, uh, uh, there's a, because of, unfortunately, the trolls that, uh, you know, the non-practicing entities that have sometimes abused the system, uh, patents are uh, not as certain anymore. So I'm not, I'm not sure if we could have gotten the venture capital money, which is, which is hard, plus, uh, I also think that, you know, MedTech, when I started Massimo, uh, was the darling of everybody. We were the, we were the place we wanted to be, biotech, MedTech, saving lives, helping people. Now we've become, uh, unfortunately, the target. I think there's just been so many negative, uh, negative, uh, thoughts associated with medical industry, which, which I, I don't understand, uh, including this medical device tax. Uh, I remember when Affordable Care Act was being discussed, they were supposed to tax food and junk that killed you. Instead, they taxed things that saved your life. You know, it's kind of a bizarre. How much bizarre sense does that make? Pardon? How much sense does that make? It's a stupid it's, tax. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Um, so, for 25 years, you guys have been, well, you know, I'm not going to say you've always been 
you've had this great narrative of being sort of David versus Goliath. Mm -hmm. What's, I mean, you're 25 years in here. What's the difference between being a scrappy upstart, being the David, rather than being the Goliath? And how do you evolve over the next 25 years to move maybe away from being scrappy to being sort of, you know, how do you become the next Bebron? You know, how does this move past Joe Keani and, and, and sort of his in, imprint on the company? Well, um, first of all, I still think we're David versus Goliath. Uh, I think the Goliaths just keep changing and getting even bigger. And I can't go too much into that. But, uh, but, but you know, I, uh, I don't aspire to be B. Brown or these other companies. Uh, I, what I really want Massimo to be is for one, to be known for truth, two, to be known for innovation, radical innovation that uh, really disrupts things and changes the dynamics and saves, uh, saves a lot of lives, saves a lot of money. And I think the only way to do that is to, uh, is to keep, hopefully, keep that culture of innovation, keep that culture of work hard, um, and uh, just hiring the very best of people despite all the rules and things people want to put up on you. Materially, though, you're releasing new products. You're really pushing this for 25 years. Did you set out and say, look, we have to, uh, we got to make a statement here in 25 years after on our 25th year anniversary? I did. I, I really, you know, one of the things I remember a good friend of mine gave me the Innovator's Dilemma book, uh, which says you can't innovate after your first innovation and you need to be a separate small company or skunk work group. And I, I thought that was ridiculous. Um, I think what happens as companies mature, the CEOs that run those companies lose touch of product, lose touch of the hard work of engineering. Engineering departments are the hardest departments to, to run. And, uh, and as you get bigger, you know, the company starts being run by finance, then eventually by legal. That's true. And, uh, and, and I really think, what did you know, I do? And, you know, he and I are known to be a little bit uh, on the edge, but. I really think if you're making product, you got to be an you got to be run. It's got to be run by an engineer. Mm -hmm. I think the world should be run by engineers. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so no, I think I want I want Massimo to be engineering driven, and it's got to always do the hard work of putting up with tough talent. You know these nerds that we like to make fun of. They're the ones who do the unbelievable stuff. Right. So. Uh, I want to kind of switch to a couple other bigger topics here. Um, you emigrated from Iran as a boy, right? You were nine years old. You started a company in your apartment. You built that company to this, you know, publicly traded firm. You've got thousands of people working for you. So you're sort of the you're sort of the the poster image for the power of the immigrant story. And I, I was I'm just curious. I mean, we're talking in this country a lot right now about immigration reform. It, it, and I just want to know what your feelings are on this, both as an employer and someone who came to this country legally and started and built a life, built a career, built you know, what will be generations of, of successful, productive people. Do you have any, any thoughts on the, on, on the dialogue that's going on over whether or not we need to reform the immigration <laughs> system? I'm sure I know do. that's a passionate topic for many different people, different angles. 
I will give you my best answer. First of all, um, I, I love the whole world. I've been to all over the world and just some incredible, incredible cultures around the world, incredible uh, food and uh, music and great people. But this country is really just special. It, it welcomes everybody. Uh, you know, you have pockets of crazies and but, uh, but in general, you know, I, I came to this country and I w lived in three little towns in Alabama. You, know, you think Alabama is an unfriendly place to maybe a foreigner. They threw a party for my family in the city hall. Um, and, you know, uh, so, I, I, so first of all, I, I think we have a really special place here where it's welcoming to everybody. I mean, look, I, especially being from Iran, I went. When I first moved to Alabama, I kept trying to say I'm from Iran. They said, no, Persia. And I kept saying, no, Iran. <laughs> then the, the hostage crisis happened. They kept saying, you're from Iran. I said, no, I'm from Persia. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 you know, joking aside, it's, uh, you know, and by the way, I, I really admire President Obama. And uh, I, by the way, I was invited to be at a very special event tonight with President Obama, and I chose to be here instead because I made a commitment. But one of the things I say to I President Obama. I would have made the same decision for different <laughs> reasons. <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things uh, I've said to President Obama is, is that you know, what makes this country amazing is that an Iranian immigrant can become whoever he tries to become. Um, and as we try to create a broader, better middle class, because really the strength of the country, any country, any civilization, is how broad and successful the middle class is. Uh, but, but you don't want to try to create that and sacrifice this country's amazing uh, ability to let anyone come in here and become whoever they become. And I, and I, and I jokingly said to them, you know, I, I came from Iran. You know, I lived very poor for a long time. I wasn't one of the rich Iranians. Uh, and then um, Iran took hostages. So then I became a hostage taker for a while. And, uh, but this, despite that, I was allowed to be who I could be. Uh, so to get back to your, your question on immigration, uh, I think first we did come legally, as you said, and, and I think that is important. I, I don't think, I, I was gonna join the Peace Force. I was never supposed to be a CEO of a medtech company. I, just, there's a host of reasons I became who I became, but so I think the world is everyone. So I start with that. I think the world is everyone's. I, mean, I think borders and all that stuff is, I wish we could do away with. And I think, I wish we could all live as a, as, as a family, as, as people. But I also do understand that rewarding someone who comes illegally uh, is, is troublesome because then they create a standard that uh, then people expect to be followed. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, when you have children born here, and uh, they live here, and then to say to them they can't stay here, or when you have uh, people who come to our schools, our universities, and they learn all the trade secrets, all the know-how, then we ship them out, that, that doesn't sound right to me. You know, I, I was nine years old, as you said, and I felt American. I, I, I didn't want to be treated differently. And uh, so, so to answer your question overall, I'd have to say, I think we do need to let these immigrants stay here. Uh, I, I think we do need to 
send a warning sound that if you come illegally next time, we're not going to be, we're not going to do this again, but at least, you know, um, give them a chance. And, and let's not forget, it's the wave of immigrants that have made this country so successful. You know, when you think about the number of aging population and that how the pressure is going to be brought up to our healthcare system, it is actually that wave of immigrants that might be our only solution to deal with it. And, uh, you know, when you have to go from zero to a different level, like we did when we came here, that not only creates a lot of energy, but it creates a lot of wonderful uh, potential energy for others. So I want to just get a couple quick reactions on something here. So you've been a member of the Orange County community for, you know, a few decades now. Uh, any concern about perhaps one of the biggest companies in the region, the one that sort of helped build this region, Allergan, is now not going to be owned locally. Um, do you feel like that will have any impact on the local infrastructure here of the MedTech community? No, I don't. I, I think when I came to Orange County, ASP, how, how many people know about ASP? Uh, they, were the, they were Orange County. ASP made computers. They were, they were I guess, like, I don't know, Dell of today or something like that. Uh, but those, the people of ASP ended up starting other wonderful companies. So I think, uh, I know David had a really strong passion and vision of making Allergan bigger and bigger, and I wish they'd left him alone to do it. And our community would have been better off had they left him to do it. But I don't think with Allergan being run by a different place, it's going to be worse. I think you'll, what you'll find, you'll find springing of a lot of other startup companies that will come out of people at Allergan that don't want to stay at Allergan mm -hmm. uh, once it's being acquired by this new, was it activist? So no, I, I think Orange County will do fine. It's you know, one of the wonderful things about moving to Orange County, I live in San Diego, is that it's grown so fast and you just grow with it. It's, uh, and I think it's got a lot more growth to, to have. You know, I'll put a couple more roads here, though. <laughs> oh. you know, we miss the blossoms uh, in the spring, but boy, it's been replaced by great communities and restaurants. And, and you know, I, when I started Massimo, whether it was the law firm of Stradling Yaka or the accounting firm uh, at the time of Ernst & Young, and now I know we work with Grant Thornton, which I, I love, or Kenobi Martins. I mean, these guys just like, took us in with open arms. Some of them billed us but didn't ask us for money until we had it to give. Uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a wonderful place. And I think that culture is here, and there's going to be much, much more good stuff happening here. Let's, uh, let's, let's move into the discussion of patient safety and, and the inspiration. What was your inspiration to start the Patient Safety Movement Foundation? Uh, I think it was two years ago, or two and a half years ago. What was, was there a galvanizing moment for you? said, I need, I need to do something, and this is a cause I want to exert considerable amount of my time and energy to? Well, I think, you know, in, we were all around when the IOM report came out that said we're losing 100,000 people due to medical errors in our hospitals every year. That was, I think, was it 1998, 1999? And what made me feel like maybe it's time we do something about it was a series of events that occurred within a few months of each other. Mm. One was a report by Medicare uh, that in 2011 that said we're losing 200 or 180,000 people uh, a year, just Medicare, and they are only 
50% of the patient population in the hospital. So I noticed the problem had not gotten any better. It had gotten worse, despite unbelievably amazing people like Dr. Don Ber Berwick and Lucian Lee and others who tried to do something about it. The second thing was uh, a, a death of a boy in New York uh, where he'd gone in for, uh, you know, he fell in the gym, scraped his knee, and then dies three days later because his own infections had gotten into his, his own bacteria that were outside got into his bloodstream and he died of sepsis. And he complained about a very bad leg ache. Uh, then he went to uh, his primary physician. He was throwing up. They said, oh, it's just food poisoning or stomach flu. Mm -hmm. For his size, he had a really high heart rate. And they, that went undetected. Then next day when he was feeling even worse, they took him to the hospital. And his kid's name was Rory Stanton. And uh, he, uh, they, they did a blood sample, very high white blood cell count. And um, still they, they discharged him thinking it's just food poisoning. Well, he died a day later. And what I realized is that if there was a, if all the medtech companies had stopped quibbling over standards and you know, their own desire to make more money off their products or control it, had we all shared our data 10 years earlier. Mm -hmm. By the time Rory had gone into that uh, hospital or that doctor's offices, those data points would be all going back to some algorithm that would have said high heart rate for his age and size, high white blood cell count. This, is, this could be septic, not just the food poisoning. And, and, and I just thought to myself, uh, you know, here I have been thinking, you know, I've got the cat's meow with all my measurements. You know, we make monitors that measure 12, 13, 14 parameters. Some of them are orthogonal. I thought I could go make a lot of money with that data. And I said, you know what, 20 years from now, I'm not going to be running Massimo now anymore. And I'll be relying still on this healthcare system. And while I can, I want to try to change something. I want to try to get us all to share our data so that hopefully 10 years from now, people can have these algorithms that will warn the nurses, the families, when there's something bad happening beyond what they think. And the last part is an opportunity I had to, the third piece that galvanized me to do something. I had gone, uh, I was a, I'm a big fan of also President Clinton and the work he's done post his presidency, bigger than what he did during his presidency. So I was involved with the Clinton Global Initiative, and we did some work with them because of our non-invasive hemoglobin and what it could do for anemia in developing countries. And I got to see the model he had. He had this model that you don't get to come to my meetings unless you make a commitment to do something. So even though he was charging $30,000 a person to go to his meetings, you couldn't get there unless you made a commitment. He made a commitment-based organization. So I thought to myself, okay, why don't we create a commitment-based organization around patient safety? Bring the whole ecosystem together, med tech companies, hospitals, doctors, engineers, government, all these wonderful people I've met, uh, and make a commitment-based approach. Hospitals make a commitment to implement solutions, processes to prevent these deaths. By the way, I mean, the fact that they're preventable means there's a solution for them already. 
And then medtech companies like ours make a pledge to share their data, so hopefully someday in the future, whether it's three years away or 10 years away, you have this wonderful predictive algorithm, the patient data superhighway that follows every one of us and helps predict. So anyway, sorry for the long answer, but that's what galvanized me to say, it's time I take a leadership role. It's time we all take a leadership role. You know, 200,000 preventable deaths a year is two planes full of people crashing every day and dying. Yeah. Carol, Bebron has had technology in its infusion pump business for over 10 years, right? That linked it to... Oh, it's much longer than that. We, we invented the first syringe pump 60 years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so you guys are doing some of this in your own um, technology, correct? Yeah. And, and I heard you talk uh, at, the Fred, at the Fred Upton's uh, 20th Century Cures, and you said, you know, I don't think we actually have a patient safety issue when it comes to devices. Yeah. Um, it, I, my intention is not to misquote you, so I want to make sure that's, that's kind of, I, I don't think it came, that, no, it's, I think that's what we work on every day. Right. Is what is supposed to come across. Don't think that we don't think about that all the time. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's on top of our mind. Mm -hmm. One thing is the treatment, the other thing is the safety of the patient is always on top of our mind. And, and by the way, not only are the, we, we have three pillars of safety. We have patient safety, we have the provider safety. They're endangered, by the way, too. Ebola right, is showing you that like right that. now. Needle stick infections and all those kind of things. And safety for the environment, all three pillars. But um, I'm not quite sure in what context that came at, 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 at Chairman Upton's uh, context, but there's no doubt about that. that patient safety is, 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 got it, is the utmost on our mind. Uh, and by the way, on the FDA's mind, too, it's not that we're not doing that. I'm, I'm just starting to study Joe's initiative, so I really can't comment that much on it. But uh, I think we all have a common understanding that patient safety is very important, is more than very important. It should be our driver next to the cure. Uh, they're equally important, putting just to treat somebody and putting them at the same time at more danger than they were before. How stupid would that be? Um, and that there are mistakes being made that we can avoid, that we have to work against that. We're doing that with our IV pumps, trying to make them that you cannot misprogram them, you know, putting in guardrails or uh, uh, making sure that the alarms come on, but then alarm, you've heard of alarm fatigue, one of your largest problems. Uh, too many alarms that the nurses say, oh, there's one alarm again, that won't be anything. Um, we've got to be very careful what we're doing and how we work together. Again, I don't quite understand your initiative. I told you B. Braun is looking into it right now and the, the first indications were inter interested. Uh, but patient safety has got to be a major driver, and it is for sure at B. Braun. It is. How, how are you working together with the hospital partners to make sure hospitals are safer places? Well, again, we're working with nurses. We're working with hospitals to make our pumps better and safer. Mm -hmm that you can't misprogram, that you can't, you know, uh, can't put in a bolus of morphine that could kill somebody, uh, that uh, lock boxes around pumps with patients who have, you know, patient control and anesthesia, that they can't press it too much and get addicted. Um, there are so many safety, we, we're put, now we're putting together lines that you cannot commit, you cannot put the wrong lines together, you can't put an oxygen line or an IV line that they don't connect today, you can, they can all come together and you can kill people just by putting an oxygen line on, a, on an IV line, putting, putting, blowing air into them. That can't happen in the future, those kind of things. We're looking at those things all the time. Is it a coordinated effort as good as it could be? Probably not, I think we probably could do better working together. 
Uh, is Joe's initiative the answer, or should we go more on a whole industry? Should this be driven by, by Advomed? Uh, as an industry, should we do it? And I, I think if they take it up, you would not say no. Or MDMA, for that matter, you're on MDMA's board, so let's be fair and mention them here too. Uh, I think if it's, those are things, and it's not that we don't have these discussions, and we don't have these stakes happen and don't try. That's part of, by the way, helping the hospitals. Uh, becoming more effective and more efficient and, and, and less mistakes because wherever humans are, mistakes are made. At least in my office, that's the case. I mean, our, so Joe, you've had 30 companies that have signed your pledge. 60 now. 60, I'm sorry. It's gone up. My damn researchers. Yeah. Um. It was 30 a year ago. It was 30. Right? 30 yeah, now, including companies like Cerner, GE, Philips, uh, uh, so how? Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. How? Okay, so how tough has it, though, been to get companies to make this leap with you? I assume everybody's heart is in the right place, and I would, I would, I would from the people I've dealt with in this industry, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. But is it, is it, has it been harder than you thought it would be? Yes, yes, I think so. But what I've noticed, I remember that we went to our first summit, and there was only a handful of companies who made the commitment, Draeger, Massimo, I think maybe GE. But as the meeting began, and as these CEOs of medtech companies were in there, like the guy from Zoll and Cerner, and they saw, because what we do at these meetings, we don't just uh, have a bunch of doctors and hospital CEOs and medtech guys talk. We have a patient advocate that talks about how they lost a loved one. And, and it's very touching. You know, Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is statistics. Mm -hmm. And I think if you lose sight of that one death, that's when you start just, it's all numbers, and we all kind of go back to our world and forget about what to do about it. And, uh, but as they watched, like, Leah, uh, who is an 11-year-old girl who was at Cedar sinai and uh, went there for an elective surgery, and uh, they gave her medication pumps to reduce the pain mm -hmm. in the spine. It was in a, kind of the wrong place, yeah. and, and she died from it. And not just that this beautiful 11-year-old girl died, but a family that was like the beavers. I mean, this is a perfect family living. I mean, the father of the year, he wouldn't see his kids for three years, the other kids. Yeah. And they lost their home. They had to move into uh, apartments. And, you know, when you, when you look at how it impacts one life, I'm not exaggerating, in the middle of the break, Rick Packer, CEO of Zoll, said, I'm in. Uh, CTO of Cerner said, I'm in. So I think you gotta really come to one of these meetings and I, I invite you to please come and see for yourself. It's just, uh, first of all, there's nothing anti-competitive about it. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, uh, in fact, if you look at your envelope, uh, the MedTech company is a very simple pledge that you share, you promise to share your data that your products are purchased for. So suppose I'm making a patient monitor. Whatever I'm displaying on the screen, you know, SpO2, hemoglobin, that data can be used by any other company that wants to use it to improve patient safety. So it's, it's actually opening up data. It's not, it's in no way anti-competitive. And you see that it's a simple pledge. Uh, and if we all make it, uh, you know, 10 years from now, both of us are probably not gonna be running these companies, but we'll be 
users of the healthcare industry. You sure look young enough that you could still do it. Oh, he's got a he's got a, an appointment here five years from now. Yeah. Well. Anyway, I'll <laughs> say twenty. How about twenty years? From now? So I I just think you know it's one of those things that um, was hard to do, but when people come to these meetings, they get it. They get that this this is something that just has to be done, and we can all. I've been in this industry for twenty five plus years, and I've seen how behind standards committees people hide and they try to make excuses and reasons why they can't communicate. We should forget about the standards. Just make the pledge to share data. Because in this day and age, within two weeks, you could write the software to have everything talk to each other. And, um, and so I contact the COVIDian, as you know, uh, to your urging. Uh, and even though they're our big competitor in Elsewhere, I invited them saying, come join. You know, I called Joe Almeida and said, come join. So I think it's actually one of those areas where we can all just join and, and take the leadership positions that we have and make a difference. I mean, Carol, we're always hearing about how hospitals and suppliers are kind of moving farther apart. Do you think that uh, this is an area where you can create some more common ground? I don't see hospitals and suppliers falling more apart at all. Okay. I, I think they need us more and are looking for us more as a partner than they ever have. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that. At least the part that we work with, and that's just our attitude, is what it is. And that patient safety is on top of our minds. That they, they don't want to do harm. They don't want to make mistakes. They want to have the most effective and best way to take care of their people. I admire, I love nurses. I mean, how can you not? Look how these people take care of those who need care. And when it comes to patient safety, we definitely have common ground. By the way, B. Braun, first thing you see when you start at B. Braun is a 40-minute video might be 30 minutes, about employees telling other employees, these new employees on this video, how our products touch their lives and save their lives. So that they understand that on the end of each or any of our products is a patient whose life depends that this product works. And they better keep that in mind every day and everything what they do. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that we do when it comes to patient safety. But uh, this patient safety issue brings us definitely near, nearer to the hospitals working with them and helping them do that. And again, I don't see a divide between suppliers and hospitals. I see, actually, I think now that they're looking at the consolidation is going on, they're looking for more solutions. I think the, the, the opportunities to partner with them is better than it's ever been. And, and you know, I, I actually think one of the wonderful things that everyone recognizes when they come to these meetings is what Carol said, you know, no one's perfect. Every hospital makes a mistake. Every med tech company makes a mistake. So it's not about, there's no criteria of being perfect before you walk in. There's a criteria of wanting to get to zero preventable death by 2020, uh, walking out. So, and I, I think it actually does bring us all closer together. We are partners. I've been to places like Jamaica where they have great doctors but no equipment and they can't get much done. And I've been to great places like my warehouse where I've got a lot of equipment a lot of equipment, but without doctors, nothing and nurses, nothing can get done. So it's a, this met tech partnership with uh, uh, hospitals and clinicians is essential for patient safety. Let's all give uh, our terrific speakers a great round of applause for an amazing. Thank you. Thank you.